Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 112, recorded January 9th, 2019. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ackin. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? I am great. It's a wonderful January. We're starting to get back into the swing of things. The news is starting to flow again. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, before we get into it, I just want to say thank you to Datadog for sponsoring the show, as they are many of our shows. So tell you more about them later. Right now, I want to just think back to what it was like to have my programming and computer science assignments graded. They were like, here is an algorithm, write the output with a pencil on a piece of paper. (laughs) We've come a long ways from there, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I even remember like, I guess turning in floppy disks and code printouts and stuff like right, that. Right, because what are you going to do? Go for them. <laughs> First thing I want to talk about is a thing called NB Grader. So that's short for Notebook Grader. And this, I just ran across this. This is just so totally cool. I'm just going to read their little thing. And there was an article about it in Journal of Open Source Education. Beginning of the summary is NB Grader is a flexible tool for creating and grading assignments in the Jupyter Notebook. MB Grader allows instructors to create a single master copy of an assignment, including tests and canonical solutions. From the master copy, a student version is generated without the solutions, thus obviating. That's totally a smarty word. Anyway, thus obviating the need to maintain two separate versions. NB Grader also automatically grades submitted assignments by executing the notebooks and storing the results of the test in a database. After auto-grading, instructors can manually grade free responses and provide partial credit using the Form Grader Jupyter Notebook extension. Uh, finally, instructors can use NB Grader to leave personalized feedback for each student submission, including comments as well as detailed error information. That sounds super useful. I totally want to play with that, even though I'm not a teacher. We're also linking to the grader, the uh, NB Grader documentation that has a little intro video on how it all works. And... Wow, it just looks totally cool. That seems like an awesome way to to grade computer science stuff. And you could grade pretty much anything that is reasonable to compute within a Jupyter Notebook, right? So I guess the people would have to have some Python or some sort of skill where they interact with it. But you know, uh, maybe that could be really simple, like just put an answer or, or a number or you know something into a cell that then gets stored and checked. But the thing that, that was kind of a concern for me as you're describing it was, well, what if, you know, there's like a super simple mistake you make and then the answer is way off. So you just get it wrong. Right. But the fact that you can go back and give partial credit and like evaluate it, that that sounds pretty cool. Like a lot of the stuff, if you got tests in place where it just uh, checks their code and all the people that got it right, you don't have to really go back and double check that stuff. Maybe spot check to make sure. They're not all writing the same answer or something, but it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. I was a TA in college and had to grade a lot of like calculus tests and stuff. This seems really lovely <laughs> compared to <laughs> the alternative, honestly. This is great. Yeah. Sometimes when people are doing their assignments, they can get pretty upset. <laughs> Things aren't working out. It's really frustrating. Yeah, they might even swear. They might. And they might do it in like a public forum or maybe they do it in like a GitHub commit <laughs> that is going to be public and you don't want it there. And so you might want to check that. And there's a couple of ways actually to check for profanity in Python. And there's a new library called profanity check, profanity dash check. So what's cool about this 
I mean, obviously, you could say, does it have these seven words or whatever? But this one takes AI and applies it to this problem, basically. <laughs> wow. It takes a linear SVM model trained on 200,000 human-labeled samples of clean and profane text. So this string is bad, this sentence is good, this phrase is bad, this phrase is good. And then it uses that to understand how similar whatever you're looking at is to something like one of these bad phrases. Isn't that cool? Yeah, very. So one of the problems with a lot of the systems out there that are more simple is they just have like a explicitly bad words. But as you can imagine, there are many, many bad words <laughs> that you might forget, or there's some slightly different way of saying some other thing and they fall through. So this one turns out to catch a lot of them. And it's also super, super fast. So there's another one out there called Profanity-Filter, which is more sophisticated than a lot of these, you know, like just are these words in here checks. This one is similar, but it because it uh, creates this model and just uses the result, it's actually like three to 400 times faster than the other one. That's cool. If you have 300 to 400 times faster, not percent times, right? Like 13 seconds versus 24 milliseconds type of difference. That's pretty awesome. And the speed really matters if you're, especially if the amount of text you're filtering is huge. Right. Or a whole bunch of stuff real time or something yeah. like that. And so it's super simple to use. It has basically two functions. <laughs> it calls predict whether or not something is bad or give the probability. So you can call predict and give it some text and it'll give you like zero or one. Or you can say, give me the probability and it'll say, this is, we think this is 70 point, you know, 76.3% bad do with that what you will. <laughs> so you can you can take it as black and white or gray and then just decide how gray you'll let it get. Okay, so I'm like I'm redoing uh, some uh, one of my websites. Maybe I'll uh, do this on my own blog posts and make sure that I haven't <laughs> uh, just curious to see uh, what my confidence level is that they're clean. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people don't have this problem, but if your problem is to take user input and evaluate it for this characteristic, like that would be a complete pain, right? And so here's a a pip install one-liner sort of thing you can do that uh, will help a lot, I think. Yeah, neat. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right, what's the next one? Something we've never talked about on this show, right? We've actually talked, to, of course, uh, talked about packaging quite a bit. So dealing with packages, if you're if you're dealing with Python a lot, like the difference between a module and a package in the file system and then a an installable package that you can distribute, that all just becomes second nature and you, we don't even really think about it anymore. But as I'm working with different people and different people are starting to work in Python around you, sometimes you have a you have somebody that you need to explain this to. And uh it's hard to remember all the it's hard for me to remember like all how, what it was like to not know all this stuff. So I bookmarked this an article called An Introduction to Python Packages for Absolute Beginners. And it's just a nice, gentle discussion about somebody trying to share some code and then describes modules and packages and using packages and installing and what import means and a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah. So I think this would be good either to hand around or just review before you go explain it to somebody. Right. We get so excited about jumping in and talking about poetry or pipenf or all these other things. And it's just like, wait, what are these? You know, when you're new, it's like, what are these things? Like, how do I make a package? You know, how do I share it? You know, people probably start out with just like one giant Python file. And like, that's the whole, the whole app is just crammed into the one file even, right? And people share the code by just emailing it around or 
copying it into different repos and stuff. And there's, yeah, there are better ways. To me, it's a little annoying that the word package has multiple meanings because it's Python calls just a directory with an init in it. That's a package. But that's not what PyPI is full of. Right. Distributions. Like wheels and all that yeah. stuff, right? Like, yeah, a whole nother level. I do agree that those are like oddly the same and different. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely confusing. So this is good. So if you're confused about how your app is working, we know a company that can help, right, Brian? Yes, we do. Datadog. So Datadog sponsoring the show, as I said at the opening, they're a cloud scale monitoring platform that brings together all your metrics, logs, distributed traces all into one place. And it will auto-instrument things like Django or Flask or Postgres and let you track requests across those different pieces of infrastructure and put them all back together to know why it was slow, where it was working, things like that. So that's pretty awesome. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog. Go do a free trial and they will send you a cool datadog t-shirt. So definitely check them out. It helps support the show. Plus the t-shirts are cool. And the t-shirts are very cool. They have a cute little dog on them. Now, I'm going to bring up something on here that we don't spend a whole lot of time on. And maybe it's even a little bit of controversial. What do you think? I'm looking forward to talking about this. Yeah, I figured you are. I figured you have an opinion one way or the other. So the idea is in Python, we can usually get away with replacing our dependencies like if we're talking to a database or a web service, we can, you know, kind of cancel that out so we can test our code by doing like some sort of patch operation or something to that effect, right? We can get it out of the way. But this guy named Yasha Gutzer, hopefully I got that closely right, sent us a, a message that said, hey, I've been reviewing all of the Python dependency injection and IOC and version control containers around Python. And I know that some folks say it's not even necessary, but on large apps, I think there's a lot of value in making your dependencies more explicit. Interesting. Yeah. So he sent us a big long list of all the options, basically. And he went and did a bunch of good research for us. Awesome. Yeah. So I'll just read off uh, a couple of them here. We got five or six. So we have one called dependency injector, which apparently requires some tricks to get installed on Windows, but he couldn't get it quite working. But it looks Pretty good. I'm kind of mediocre on that one. There's Injector, which is fairly Java-esque. There's Pinject, uh, probably Pinject, P-I-N-J-E-C-T, something like that. And this one had kind of gone unmaintained, but there's, uh, for like five years, long time. But now there's new folks working on it, so that's kind of cool, and it, it seems like it's doing a lot. There's Python Inject, which... It's got some really nice testing features. It's got like built-in mocking stuff and things like that. Are you starting to notice a similarity in the name? The naming? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's another one that's just here more for completeness sake. DIPy, but it only works on Python 3.4 uh, apparently. So appreciate the, the comment here is like, you know, this is a legacy. So I, I can't really be touching on this. Like, that's no good. <laughs> and then the, the next two I think are really quite good. Okay. There's Serum which I think actually is a pretty interesting thing to look at because what it does is it primarily is driven through class decorators. Okay, so what you do is you go to like some class here and you say um, this class is a dependency. So you put it at dependency on to the class definition. And then later on, you can put an at inject on top of 
either a function call or a class. And if the class has like, say, like a log field, a class level log field, it will automatically be set to an instance of that dependency based on the type annotation. There's an interesting way that it kind of uses type annotations and class decorators to link that back together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then the final one is this thing called HAPS. And HAPS is pretty cool and it's really lightweight and quite simple. Also based on type annotation. So a lot of them are taking advantage of the, I think it's probably 3.6, either 3.5 or 3.6, but I think it's 3.6 because of the, some of the ways it's using type annotations. But it's using the, the point is using the modern features of Python 3 to help figure out uh, a lot of the configuration and how stuff wires together. Okay. That's the survey that uh, Yosha gave us. And thank you for that. That was cool. Now you want to have a quick chat about whether Python needs dependency injection? What do you think? I'm still like confused as to what the problem is that it's trying to solve is my thing. I hear you. And I think, let me try to talk about the other side, although I find myself not doing this very often. So for what it's worth, I don't do dependency injection a lot. So I think the fundamental, let's do it a couple steps. I think the fundamental starting point is it's trying to write object-oriented Python or even functions following the open and closed principle, which is one of the solid principles. And it's it's pretty interesting, this principle. It says that software entities like classes and functions should be open for extension, but closed for modification, which is like, what the heck does that mean? Basically, I should be able to change the behavior of this class or this function without touching the source code to modify it, which kind of sounds like, wait, how do you do that? <laughs> How's that possible? But imagine like it has like a logging feature instead of just internally creating one, if you could pass in the logger, you could pass in different loggers changing the behavior of how it logs, right? So open close principle, that's how it works, right? That's, I think the general motivation for all of these frameworks yeah. is they're like, that's cool. I want to do that. It's good for testing because I could pass in like a fake logger or like a mock database. I could pass that in, right? And not touch the database. And I think that's generally a good feature a good way to do things. The problem is if you do that at low level stuff and at all the different layers of your app at the top, you've got to like pass like 20 things to the top level things. So it can like distribute them down as it creates all the objects further down the graph. Right. So then people have come up with IOC containers, which like get registered for what I need one of these. I really give it one of those. And then I create this object by giving it three of these things at once. And that starts to get really hard in my mind to know like, okay, what, is being done here. Like I see a bunch of abstract types and I can't even tell. An example of like, uh, you don't know what database you're going to use. Another, you can do the the injection thing, but it kind of ripples through a whole bunch of layers of code is, the, is the part that I don't like. Whereas um, uh, another way to do this is to, to kind of bypass all of the middle stuff and at a top level have, and like Flask, I think Flask does this sort of a thing. And lot, this is a common design is to you define instantiate the uh, the real objects at a like an application level and just set those where they need to be set. So there's like a whatever the real database is. Right. Go look up the service for the database and everybody can ask that thing to give it the database, right? And then everybody just uses the same interface and we don't need to pass it through all the levels of constructors and stuff. It can just kind of bypass all of that. I guess then because that's how I generally do things and then for testing 
Yeah, I'm okay with patching and monkey patching and stuff like that. So I hear you. I think in Python it is certainly something that's open f- more for debate because we do have these alternative ways to accomplish the same thing like monkey patching. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the open-close principle in general, but I do think it can just become like too much when you put it all together. And certainly I've worked on some applications that did this all over the place. And it was some of the most frustrating code I've ever had to like work through. Cause it was just like every step you're like, I have, there's four things working together and I don't know what any of them are right now because of some configuration setting somewhere other than that. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of, uh, I'm on the fence. Like I, some parts of this I think are cool and some I think can go too far, but I guess, you know, check out haps. If this kind of stuff is interesting to you, it is, it is pretty well done. I think that one of the places for it is, if people are really used to using this kind of a model and then coming to Python, yeah, you can do it here too. Yeah. It's just, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I'm there. Yeah. I think there's simpler things than IOC containers, but this podcast is probably a little short if we're going into them, but <laughs> it's certainly an interesting thing to think about. And here's a bunch of options. Yep. Cool. I, you know, after all that, Brian, I feel like I just need something gentle, like a gentle conversation about like a soft, fuzzy animal. <laughs> yeah. Like a gentle introduction to pandas. <laughs> yes, well, maybe not an animal, but yeah, something gentle. Tell us about pandas. So this is uh, another kind of a newbie thing, but I we're starting to use uh, pandas data frames at work, and I kind of, I really kind of needed a pretend I'm just starting out, which I am, and uh, kind of tell me how these things work. And so this is a, it's called a gentle introduction to pandas, but it's really a gentle in- introduction to the data structures series and data frame. The series are interesting. I think it's just a precursor to try to jump you into data frames. That's where the real fun gets starts to happen. Goes through about a half an article talking about arrays, series. How do you create series from arrays and dictionaries? And and I didn't know you could create a a series from uh, from just a scalar and give it a bunch a different index and it'll like fill it in. That's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. But then it jumps into data frames. And then talks about sorting and slicing and how do you select things by label or position. And then uh, what one of the things and how easy it is to get the statistics on columns and then how to get, cool. get things in and out of data frames. So importing and exporting. And then, you know, where you take it from there is depends on your problem space. But this is kind of a really good, why do we call these things data frames and why do we care about them? If you need to understand them, this is a decent article. Yeah, if you need to understand them in 15 minutes, this <laughs> is kind of a, a no-fluff, keep-it-simple one. Yeah. Nice little article by Wilson Busaka. Well done. Let's see. Medium tells me it's a five-minute read, but I bet Medium's not taking into account the code. So 15 minutes, how about that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right, so this last one I have for you, Brian, I think I think it's going to be uh, a little bit of a, a shock. It'll come across a little bit weird at first, but the more you look at it, the more it starts to sound appealing, let's say. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to give you some advice and I'll tell you a bit about it. So the advice, you know, you also get all sorts of advice like um, don't format your code like this. Don't um, have a bunch of multiple, if this is equal to this value and that value and that value, maybe do an in test. So there's like sort of Pythonic ways to do conditionals and whatnot. The advice here is to never, not almost never, says don't use the greater than sign in programming. Yeah. It's crazy, right? It seems like kind of a bold statement. I'm like, well, we have it. It must be useful somewhere. (laughs) It must be useful. And why would we not want to use it? So this is an article by a good friend of mine, Llewellyn Falco, who I've known for a long time. 
But someone else sent me this article, which I thought was a pretty interesting coincidence. And Llewellyn has a really interesting way of like looking at straightforward stuff and then just getting it down to its essence. So he he says like, let's look at this problem. Let's suppose I want to check whether a number, let's call it X, so variable, is between five and 10. There are a lot of ways that we can do this. We could say X greater than five and 10 greater than X, or we could say X greater than five and X less than 10, right? Those are equivalent, but why should you choose one or the other? Well, he lists off these six different ways of doing this. He says, actually, here's all the ways. Oh, no, wait, look, one of them is wrong. Go back and figure out which one is wrong. And it's like not very obvious. You know, you kind of got to go through and think through every little bit. All right. So he says, look, if you remove the greater than sign, there's actually only two ways to say this. X less than 10 and five less than X, which is kind of weird, or five less, less than X and X less than 10. So in that last one, it's cool because the variable you're trying to test between five and 10 is literally between the five and the 10 in that statement. Like it's in text, it's between and it's actually between. Yeah. So here you can test like this containment interval bit completely with uh, no greater than. That's how, how I code. I, I think of, I, especially, well, especially with numbers, I think of the, um, that all of the comparisons need to kind of be on the number line. Yes. You can think about them easier. I've never really seen it as it put in place as a rule, a kind of a, a rule of thumb of just don't use the greater than sign. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this analogy back to the number line is, is perfect because it's like, well, where do you want the variable to be relative to those? So if you want it to be between, then as you say, like five less than X, X less than 10, right? So it's between. If you want to test that it's outside there, you could do the same thing, X less than five or 10 less than X, and you put the variable outside the numbers, right? So you can do this number line sort of relative bit with both, you know, and and or and containment and not contained in and things like that. We'd kind of be remiss if we didn't mention that this article is referencing all programming languages. If you're doing Python, of course, you would just say, five is less than X is less than 10. You can, you don't need the end. Nice. Uh, and also somebody said, okay, I'm all for, I follow you on this. This is great. And I'm with you, but how do you say I would like all the numbers greater than one without the greater than sign? And so uh, the answer is of course, one less than X. Yeah. There's times where it's, a, it's a little, that's why it's not like, it's more of a rule of thumb. Yeah. I think because there's times where it just it doesn't look right and you kind of, you have to go for maintenance. If it, if it just looks weird, um, then change it. I brought this in because I thought it was interesting. And like, when I first read it, I'm like, well, that's dumb advice. What is this? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I read it, I'm like, actually, no, this makes a lot of sense a lot of the time, but it's, I agree. If you have one thing, you want to say X is greater than one, you know, don't twist around so you don't have to have the greater than sign. Just like say the most straightforward thing. But if you're doing more complicated comparisons, then I think it's it's worthwhile. Yeah, like I would say, like it, like it, for instance, a series of if clauses. If you have a, and you're not really testing both ends. If you're doing like if x is greater than the max, then do something. And if all the comparisons have x on the left, I wouldn't change it just because of this. But yeah, anyway. All right, Brian. Well, that's it for all of our main topics. I got a few extras to share uh, with everyone while uh, we're here. Just really quick and short things. And of course, not be forgotten as our joke, but you got any extras to share with everyone? I did mention last time that, that I was having some issues with uh, pythontesting.net. I think I mentioned that, but with SSL and stuff, but that's all 
That's all resolved and fixed. Wait, wait, wait. So if I go over here and I pull this up in Chrome, is it going to tell me that it's secure? It should. Nice. Yeah, testing code over SSL. Beautiful. It's now, it's still kind of a WordPress thing is what I use. And I'm not thrilled with that. So I have a side project going on to convert that to something else. But it's not urgent anymore. Yeah, that's good. Well, you'll have to give us the full uh, report once you get it all fixed up. Okay, so you said you got a bunch of stuff for us. I do. I'll go through them quick. First of all, there's a new Python podcast, which is pretty exciting. And this one is focused on teaching Python. And do you know what the name of it is? I think it's probably Teaching Python. <laughs> yeah, it is. So <laughs> Teaching Python is by Kelly Perdez and Sean Tibor. Sorry about the messing up the names, but they're doing a podcast. These are two middle school teachers who are learning and teaching Python to their students and go, you know, basically documenting that journey. So if you're interested in that, especially if you're a teacher or you work with kids, I think this will be really, really helpful for you. So you can check that out. I'm about halfway through the their backlog so far, and I really like it so far. Yeah, they're doing a nice job. One of the things that had kept people from using GitHub for their private work was that you had to pay for private repositories on GitHub, no matter what. Yes. Right? So people would use Bitbucket because Bitbucket had free private repositories. No, well, GitHub decided we're also going to have free private repositories. So if you're working on projects and that they have to stay private or you just want them private, you can now use GitHub without paying anything. There's been some weird reactions to it, but they're just sort of following the model of uh, Bitbucket and uh, GitLab now. So I I don't think there's anything weird going on. Exactly. Competition is a good thing, and here we have it. So it's not like entirely free. It's not like GitHub decided they're not going to make money anymore. You can only have three contributors to the private repository, and so there's limits and things like that. But still pretty cool for most things. Yep. All right. Also, very quickly, some early details about EuroPython are available, and it's looking pretty sweet. I'd love to go. I don't know if I'll be able to. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so they just announced EuroPython. It's going to be in Basel, Switzerland, July 8th to 14th. And it looks great. So I put a link to the conference site there. I don't think they have called for papers or anything like that out yet, but it should be out pretty soon. Okay. Another thing that has been lacking in the world is good data center support in Africa. So hmm. I know this because I, I use AWS to deliver the video course content, like actual the videos. <laughs> and I have streaming servers all over the place, like in Brazil or Mumbai or whatever, but there was just no way to do that in Africa. So the big news is uh, there's an AWS data center coming to South Africa, which is pretty cool for anyone that wants to you know be closer to that part of the world. And finally... Pandas is dropping legacy support. No more Python 2 in Pandas. Oh, cool. Yeah, and that's coming out like this month. So should be good. Yeah, this is the year that a ton of projects are dropping uh, Python 2. Yeah, for sure. So one more major thing. We already covered how cool Pandas is. It's not going to support legacy Python anymore. All right. You ready for the joke? Yeah. Can I click on it now? You can click on it. This is the visual one, but I can describe it to you folks. Now, I just got to do a quick little bit of history here for people who maybe have not seen Harry Potter. So this is the Harry Potter joke. And there's a point in the Harry Potter movie, I think this might be the first one, where Harry Potter has to get on this like long table and is battling, I don't know, someone, something. And all the other students are standing around. And somebody like conjures a snake, a serpent. And Harry, in the real show, Harry starts speaking to the thing, 
in its native tongue, which apparently is a freaky thing to do. And people were all freaked out. And it was called a parcel tongue, something like that, right? That he could speak snake. So with that, here's the joke. So there's a picture. Harry's fighting the snake in that environment. And he says, import OS, current path equals OS, get current working to her. And just starts speaking out Python commands at the snake. And Hermione <laughs> says, I didn't know Harry spoke Python. And uh, Ron Weasley says, yeah, he's a parser tongue. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. It's really bad. It's really bad. But there it is. And uh, Nick Spirit sent that to us. So thank you, Nick, for uh, finding that joke and letting us share it here. Yeah, very nerdy. Yep. He's a parser tongue. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're going to leave it at that, Brian. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Yep. bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.